Graham, thank you very much for being my guest. It's and, a pleasure. And thank you for, um, for me being your guest as well. <laughs> I, I've, I've been fascinated ever since I met you, listening to your story of planes. And I think the, the main thing that I want to start by setting the scene is to say, I mean, we're sat in an aircraft hangar at the moment next to Ariadne, which is G-A-D-N-E, your beloved plane. Hornet Moth. Hornet Moth. It's, um, it, we, we've been through some of the stuff this morning talking about all sorts of different aspects of this plane. But first off, rather than get into you and talking about your journey to this very point, um, talk to me about this plane for starters. Explain to me what the plane is uh, and explain to me um, you know, why you're passionate about it, I guess. Uh, I'm passionate about all old, old aeroplanes. Um, I... Uh, used to fly the Tiger Moth, which most people have heard of, uh, which is an open cockpit biplane. Um, unfortunately, that got written off, not by me, at a fly-in. Um, but by then, I'd, I'd uh, sort of joined the group that runs this aeroplane. The Hornet Moth is quite rare. There aren't many of them flying. Uh, it's a challenging aircraft to fly, which uh, keeps you on your metal and it is part of the pleasure of it. It's like doing a challenging ski run and, and the, the buzz you get when you do it well. Um, it's uh, an enclosed cabin, which is, makes it a more effective tourer than the Tiger Moth, which is open cockpit. So we've taken this to France and toured around France in it, and it was designed for touring. It was designed in the early 1930s. This particular one was built in 1936, uh, has always been named Ariadne because of its registration, and it got impressed into the RAF service during the war, so it's got a lot of back history. It used to be a target for radar trials in the Malvins and places like that, in camouflage colours. Uh, survived the war just about, and then went back onto the, the civil register and has had numerous owners since. Um, it's it's an, a really neat aeroplane to own and operate It's because it, it's practical. You can take it places. It takes quite a bit of fuel and some bags, which not all of these vintage things do. Uh, it's comfortable when you're in, even for somebody with your length of leg. <laughs> um, and it's, um, it's nice to fly. Um, you get a great view from it. And it's part of living flying heritage. So it's... A, uh, it's a metal body, it's a biplane, and you mentioned earlier that it's got fabric wings, is that right? Uh, it's not a metal uh, body, it's a wooden body. Oh, okay. So the structure's wood, and all the fuselage and all the wings are wood covered by fabric. Right. Um, there are metal panels at the front that, that surround the engine. Um, it has a tail wheel, has very rudimentary brakes... Um, and it's got two doors that look like they've come from an Austin 7. <laughs> One of the things I noticed when I got in was these similarities from my Morris Minor. There's, the, there's quite a lot, yes. <laughs> the handles when you pull on the inside look like definitely something would have been in my Morris. Definitely the handles on the outside are as well. They're, they're, they're really, really fabulous. And it's this beautiful... What's the colour? I mean, it's red, but I mean, I didn't want to say tomato red, but it's sort of... But it's that kind of... Red. It's almost like post office box red, isn't it? And it's with silver wings. And the lettering on the red fuselage is silver. 
and the wings are silver, so the, the lettering on the wings are red. And um, I, I think it looks drop-dead drop gorgeous. Um, it, it's fantastic. Now, you mentioned to me when we were speaking earlier that you, I asked you how many of these particular planes were actually in operation at the moment, or how many were in existence, how many were in operation. So talk me through that. There's about 12, maybe 14 around the world. There are seven, I believe, currently airworthy in the UK. So that makes it a very rare moth indeed. Um, and uh, to compare that with, say, the tiger moth, there's probably about 200 of those on the UK register. And, and owning something like this or being a, a part owner, is that, is that how most people operate uh, for play, uh, you know, vintage planes? Always. Either sole owners or, or in a group. Um, you can't hire these aeroplanes. They're too valuable. They're too difficult to fly. So when I joined this group quite a number of years ago now, I had to do five hours of training on it before I was allowed to fly it solo because it's got a lot of peculiarities. So the only chance of flying these sorts of aeroplanes, particularly solo, um, is if you join a group that's got one or you, you, you're wealthy enough and daft enough to own it yourself. Um, which, I mean, some of them are, are solo. <coughs> um, but, they, um, but that's the only chance you've got. So the, the plane itself, you said it's sort of got... Comp- peculiarities. Talk me through how um, you know, difficult this is to fly. Uh, in the air, it's not. It flies like most other aeroplanes. It's vintage, so its handling isn't as easy, well-mannered as modern aeroplanes. It's a bit twitchy and it requires constant um, action on the controls just to keep it going in the right place. But in the air, it's, it's fairly well-behaved. It's, it's on the ground that it's... Um, uh, can be a beast. Um, it, it's, uh, I liken it on landing to an out-of-control supermarket shopping trolley. <laughs> you know, the ones that don't go in the way you want them to go. Um, and it can be really quite a brute, particularly if there's any crosswind. Um, and um, it can catch you out very quickly. Um, so it's not for the inexperienced. And even the experienced have to have proper training on it before you can let them loose on it. The first thing to make everybody understand is the angle that you're actually sat when you're actually taxiing along your runway. You're literally, is it sort of about 30 degrees or 20 degrees? It's about 20 degrees, yes, because it's a tailwheel aeroplane, as all, all were in those days. Um, and there's a reason why <coughs> modern aeroplanes have a nose wheel instead of a tailwheel, because the nose wheel makes them much easier to land. Um, so the tailwheel combined with vintage flying characteristics combined with uh, very poor brakes um, make it quite challenging when it's on the ground. But you've got quite a lot of uh, modifications, I think. That I, I'm imagining people are thinking, well, you know, how on earth do you fly one of these planes with regard to the way modern aviation is today, but there were certain things inside the cockpit that were yeah. modern, yeah. but with lots and lots of the original old dials, all which work. Um, talk yeah. me through some of that. Well, some people keep them completely original, but these days, with so much controlled airspace about, it restricts you so much. Could you just explain what controlled airspace Controlled airspace is airspace where there's an air traffic controller 
that, that manages the aircraft that are within it. So it's usually around airports or uh, major installations and so on. And you can't go into that airspace unless you can talk to the air traffic controller responsible for it and he give you permission. And usually he gives you permission that requires you to have certain instruments on your aeroplane so he can tell where you are and what you're doing. Um, so none of those were required in the old days. Um, and therefore, if it was completely authentic in the cockpit, then you, you would be restricted to where you can fly it. This, this aircraft has got its original uh, control panel with all of the, uh, the dials and knobs and so on, but it's also got a modern radio and a modern transponder. The transponder is the piece of kit which the air traffic control radar talks to, and it gives it a signal to tell you how high, tell the radar how high you are and where you, where you are. So that gives you the freedom to go to places where you can't otherwise go. Um, and that's it, really. So it's an original panel with a modern radio and a modern transponder. So how high do you fly? As low as you can get away with. Um, <laughs> there's no point flying high in these aeroplanes unless you, you, you're clearing some high ground or whatever. So I think the highest I've taken this up is probably about to 4,000 feet going over the channel. Um, but normally I stick at around 2,000, 2,500 feet because... If, you know, it's the best view you get. Uh, I have another aeroplane that's open cockpit, and you fly that even lower because the the only point of going higher in that aeroplane uh, is to clear ground. Otherwise, the higher you go, the colder it is. Um, so the, you you tend to stay quite low. There are problems with that. Uh, this area that we're in at Oaksey Park um, is part of a an army helicopter flying area where you get helicopters flying at low level which fly faster than this aeroplane right so you've got to keep a watch out but um by and large um it it's safe at two two and a half thousand feet and um and it poodles along nicely so you've obviously done some epic journeys uh, name some of the things you've done and where you've gone because you mentioned to me when we were talking earlier that you were going on a sort of multi-stage trip with some a friends. A moth tour, yes. A moth tour, yeah. <laughs> in this aeroplane, uh, at the end of June, there's a three-day moth tour going out to the southwest, um, and then uh, on, a, on separate days going out to the southeast. So we're bracketing the whole of the s southern England below the Midlands. <clears throat> and um, every night we're still staying in the same hotel, so we'll be at the bar shooting the crack and everything else uh, about what marvellous flyers we are and, uh, <laughs> and laughing at everybody else's landings. Um, so it, that, that's good fun. Um, <clears throat> this aeroplane I've taken across to France, um, flown around a, a lot of the, the First World War uh, battlefields. Have you? So flown it across to Verdun, for example. Verdun was the site, that was their French Somme. You know, the Somme has this, this iconic um, character in British history, military history. Verdun is, it was the French Somme, and um, uh, they, uh, Verdun is a, is a, a town that, that was embedded in a series of fortified gun placements that, that were on jacks, so they were below the ground. 
and came up to fire and then went back down again. This, this is all put in place at the beginning of the First World War. So we flew around all over there. And there's a massive ossuary, <clears throat> a bone museum, on top of a hill overlooking Verdun, which has reputedly over 100,000, the bones of over 100,000 unidentified French and German soldiers in oh. it. And it's, this, it's, a, it's a remarkable ivory-white, huge, quite organic structure on this hill with an organic spire. It's quite unworldly. And we've, we're flying around that um, in an aircraft that's got the performance of a First World War aeroplane. It's really quite moving. Um, we, uh, we've flown, I flew, flew my Tiger Moth down to Toulouse, down in South France. Um, that was super, and we we spent days touring all of the uh, the the um, Qatar fortified towns in the limestone gorges north of Toulouse. The Qatars were a Protestant sect in the 14th and 15th centuries that were bitterly persecuted by Catholic France uh, because it wasn't they weren't in France at the time. Uh, France didn't get down that far. Um, and they had built all of these fortified, tiny little settlements on these precipitous limestone peaks. Carcassonne. And, and that sort of thing, yeah. So, so we spent days flying around those at low level and so on. Wow. We've flown down the Loire at, at sort of 400 feet, waving at all the tourists in the <laughs> chateau along the Loire. Went over Chenonceau. Oh, you did you? Yeah, Chambord. <laughs> um, so... That's great, and, and the lovely thing about flying in France is they love these old aeroplanes. They're wow. very, they're very aviation oriented in France. Every town has an airfield. It's a, like a badge of rank for the local mayor, and they love these eccentric Englishmen flying these old aeroplanes out there. And they're so helpful. I've flown around France for a week, moving on every day and never had to book a taxi to take me to the local hotel at night because there would be a Frenchman come out of a hangar somewhere and thrust a cold beer in your hand and then insist on taking you to your hotel and be there in the morning to pick you up. It's just lovely. lovely. Wow, how courteous <coughs> and, you know, special. You know, people are really feeling that. Don't, the, the, the opposite of just thinking that, oh, you posh tosser with your, with your biplane, you know, but actually revere that. They love rather it. Than... They absolutely, they love it. That, that it's, there's a... It's much stronger aviation culture in, in France. Um, and uh, literally every town, as far as I can see, has, has got a lovely airfield, which is barely used. You also mentioned, when I originally spoke to you about this, going to, was it the Isle of Mull or something you flew up to? This, well, I didn't do it. It's, um, but two members of this group that owns the aeroplane that have now had to retire on medical grounds because they've reached that age... They used to go touring. They, they toured right up to Norway in this aeroplane, Ariadne. They've toured up right to the Outer Hebrides. Um, and they had a significant incident. Uh, at Unst, there is an airfield to service the gas rigs and so on. And they had to land this in a very, very, st very strong crosswind. And uh, it, it folded the right-hand undercarriage und under the belly. The, it failed the undercarriage. And they had to get it trucked back from Unst uh, on a 40-ton lorry, um, which took forever. Um, that was before I, I had a relationship with this aeroplane, but 
they um, they can bite if you don't treat them well. Wow. I mean, when you're in that situation, what, take the wings off? Do you have to take the wings off? And they then... fold, actually, the wings. Do they? Yes, they do. They, and it's really neat to see them folded. Um, and de Havilland, the company that designed and built this aeroplane, uh, organised most of their aircraft to have folding wings because so, it reduced hangar space that you needed. I love the fact it's got a big exhaust underneath it. <laughs> it's like a, like it, a car exhaust. It is. It's a very long exhaust, and it actually deadens the sound of the engine. It's, it's, in this day and age, it's really worth having. So, Graham, let's, let's just start by also talking about how you got involved in planes in general. I mean, you seem to come across as somebody who knows an awful lot about them, but not just from a um, leisure perspective, but also from more than that as well. So talk to me about how you got involved in the world of planes. Um, I, can, uh, I can date precisely the, the, the time that I got uh, fascinated with aeroplanes, all aeroplanes, and that was when I was 12, and we were on a holiday in North Wales on a farm, and I'd run out of reading, and I've always been a, a big bookworm. Um, which is a nightmare, a disaster, nothing to read. So we went into Carnarvon, and there was a tiny little bookshop on um, the main street of Carnarvon. And uh, I spotted these little books of aeroplanes. Uh, they're no longer done, but each year a publisher would produce a book of all of the aeroplanes that are in, being made at that time, both military and civil, and give little black silhouette drawings of the aeroplanes and all of their details, you know, the wingspan and their engine power and all that stuff. They were called the Observer's Book of Aeroplanes. I used to have many Observer's oh, Book. Did Observer's you? Book of Birds, animals, all sorts of Yes, the, the, you could get flags, you could, or castles and so on. Yeah. Well, I got, I got uh, the Observer's Book of Civil Aeroplanes and the Observer's Book of Military Aeroplanes and just read these relentlessly on, on this holiday. And that's... Just, I became fascinated with aeroplanes at that just up through that, that means. I then decided, because I've always been strong on the, the, the sort of science and, and maths topics, that I, would, I wanted to become a pilot, a professional pilot. I've had terrible eyesight since the age of 14. I'm short-sighted. So I knew I'm not going to be a, pilot, a professional pilot. In those days, the civil aircraft uh, airline market wouldn't take you, and the RAF wouldn't. And I didn't want to just be somebody hanging around airlines or the RAF as a second-class citizen. So I decided I'm going to be an aircraft designer. And um, I was one of those snotty kids that the careers teacher used to get who was, was absolutely clear what they wanted to do. And the career teacher used to keep saying, yeah, but what about this and what about that? Nope, nope, I'm going to be an aircraft designer. Um, so I did an aeronautical engineering degree at Manchester University. I got um, an undergraduate apprenticeship f straight from school with um, a, co a British company called the British Aircraft Corporation at that time, which had a very highly regarded undergraduate apprenticeship system. So I went straight from A-levels at school to work for them for a year as an apprentice. Um, then I did my normal three years at uni, and then I went back to them for a year, and then I started working full-time for them. 
Um, I was an aerodynamicist to start with. I then decided I was going to learn all of the different disciplines, the structures, the electronics, the engines, everything. So I moved around jobs on a fairly deliberate pattern so that I'd basically done everything that goes into designing a, uh, an aircraft. And eventually, after 20-odd years uh, of climbing the ranks and doing increasingly senior jobs, I was the chief engineer of all the aircraft programs in British Aerospace. Wow. So BAC, BAC British Aircraft Corporation, shortly after I joined them, merged with Hawker Siddeley Aviation, the two biggest companies in the country, to make British Aerospace. Uh, so I was, so I've run um, mainly on the fast jet, the, the fighter jet side, I've run teams of thousands of graduate engineers designing and, and, um, and developing fast jets. During that time, I used to take every opportunity to um, justify a ride in these fast jets, as you do, because uh, it was essential I understood what was going on. Yeah, I bet. It, some people thought they were jollies, but it was for purely professional reasons. Um, and um, so I've always been, all my career, I've always been involved in aircraft. I've always, in, I've always been interested in the, the technology of aeroplanes. Uh, I, I'm just as interested in the technology of the very first aeroplanes as the latest aeroplanes. Um, I chair a society of World War I aviation historians because I'm passionate about World War I aircraft. Um, and I, and it's, I'm interested in the men that used to fly them, they, they, the fortitude and the courage that they had, as much as the aeroplanes and how those aeroplanes were developed and why were they developed and so on. So um, that's how I got into aeroplanes. I've been in aeroplanes ever since. Um, so I'm trying to think now, I'm probably coming up to um, nearly 50 years of being involved with aeroplanes, one wow. way or another. Uh, I took, I decided when I was in my early 30s, I, I wanted to get my pilot's license. So at that time I was based in the northeast um, near Hull um, at a British aerospace airfield that was developing the Hawk jet trainer which is what is the aircraft that the red arrows fly and we were completely re-engineering it for export uh, and during that time I learned um, after I'd, I'd work in my office running the Hawk design teams then I'd go out and have a flight lesson at the end of the day straight from the office um, uh, so uh, I've had my license now for well over 30 years um, and I've gravitated inexorably to vintage aircraft over those years because that's what I'm really interested in and that's what gives me my satisfaction of flying. So when you say with, with jets, what, what specific ones? Um, I have flown at very high speed and very low level in a jet called the Buccaneer, which was the Navy's uh, carrier jet it's a great beast of an aeroplane didn't have a big cone on the front yeah and there was i always remember seeing probably in the observer's book of planes yeah uh, but the uh it had a sort of like a sharp silver cone at the yeah. very front what was all that about was it like an air intake or something uh no um that, that was that was just a fairing for the front of the fuselage it had um 
the, the Buccaneer had an internal uh, bomb bay, which was unusual for jets in those days. Um, it was built like a brick outhouse uh, because it was designed to thump onto very small carriers that the Royal Navy had. So this is a very big aircraft, uh, very demanding to fly, and then had to drop onto a very short deck that the Ark Royal Carrier had. So it, was, it looks like it had been built in a locomotive works. It, it, it was so beefy. But it was the fastest thing at low level, and it still is. There, there's nothing that's been designed since that can fly as fast as the Buccaneer at low level. And I've done some fantastic flights in the Buccaneer, one memorable one is we, we, there were three of us in formation flying down the Great Glens of Scotland across all of the locks, then up the northern approaches, and I got to 650 miles an hour at 80 feet above the sea. Um, and it's like Star Trek. You know when they go into warp drive and everything goes blurry? It's like that. And, uh, and then we went round and, start, and dropped some... Um, some dummy 1,000 pound bombs on the, on the range that's on the Murray Firth. Um, sp- spectacular aeroplane, the Buccaneer. Um, there's an American aeroplane that was their standard fighter in Vietnam and beyond called the Phantom. And uh, I used to be responsible for that. So that's the only time I've ever been supersonic. I was in a Phantom. Um, Just what supersonic, as in like over 750? Yeah, yeah. Sup- yeah, we went to. It's called Mach 1 is the speed of sound. Anything above Mach 1 is supersonic. So what's it like being inside a plane that goes faster than Mach 1? It's a complete non-event. Because these it? aircraft were designed to go supersonic. Uh, all you, the only way you know you're going, you've gone supersonic is because there's a Mach meter and the needle goes past 1. That's it. Because you'd go supersonic at high level. But you don't feel um, any different. It's no, not as though. Cause, no. I mean, there's obviously those those beautiful videos you see on YouTube of like a plane with this big sort of plume of white yeah, weirdness going on not, the outside. Not, not high level, right? The great thing about the Phantom is it had a, a huge excess of thrust. It had massive engines, and the the there are and on the fastest jets have reheats. It's called. If you see them at air shows, you can see a great plume of of of. Uh, orange fire coming out of the back of the engines and that's because they've selected an extra fuel system that pours fuel into the back of the engine which boosts the thrust of the engine considerably and the phantom when it was in full reheat and i asked the pilot once to do this uh, it took off retracted the undercarriage stayed very low over the airfield until he got to the far end of the runway and then he stood it on its tail and we went straight up to forty thousand feet in two and three quarter minutes. Wow. Uh, it was like riding the space shuttle. It was just fantastic. <laughs> um, and then the Hawk, the Hawks, uh, I, d- I had a lot of flights in the Hawk, and the Hawk's just a, a fantastic aeroplane. I actually have landed the Hawk uh, myself with supervision. And, is, can um, I just say, is the Hawk the plane that the Red Arrows use? Yes, yeah. And it's, uh, it's designed as, the, as an advanced jet trainer. So it can go about 560 miles an hour. It can, it's very aerobatic. Um, and um, I've had lots of flights in that. And when you sit in the front seat of a Hawk, it's got a big wraparound windscreen. There's no structure or anything in front of you. You can't see the nose cone. So it's like riding the tip of a missile. Wow. And I once had a flight up Windermere on a January day when Windermere was just a mirror and uh, blue skies and there was snow on all of the surrounding peaks 
and we went up there at about about 500 miles an hour at 200 feet over Windermere and it was just and I was in the front seat with this best view in the house uh, it was just uh, these things still stick in my mind I can picture them now I'm not surprised so when you're going at over 750 miles an hour or something on those lines I mean I guess the higher you are, the less speed it feels, and the yeah. lower you are, obviously, the Correct. faster it feels. Yeah. And then we, we were talking about, you were saying about doing barrel rolls, yeah. and you mentioned about the inertia of if you go one direction or the other direction or something. But you explain that, and then you, you were telling me. Well, formation aerobatics um, are, you know, really the most challenging thing that any pilot ever does. And I've never got good at formation, I've never tried to get good at formation because you. you you, once you've trained up to do it, you've got to keep doing it to keep current in it. You, you, those skills, you know, if you don't do them regularly, decay quite quickly. But uh, I was saying to you that, that the the old Rothmans aerobatic team in the 70s and 80s, I had some flights with, and they they used to fly a tiny biplane called a Pitt Special. And when they used to do wingovers or, or loops or uh, rolls in formation... They would the, the the lead aircraft, uh, the the second aircraft would stick its wing, this tiny short wing, in between the lead aircraft's wing and tailplane, and they would stay in that position through every single manoeuvre. So they were practically ten feet apart through all of these very dynamic manoeuvres. It was breathtaking skill. Breathtaking. Uh, didn't you say that the G-force that as you're going if you're if you're doing a, a loop but the g-force is pushing you down yeah you can cope with a lot more yes. than if it's going the other way yeah the um when you go over a humpback bridge when you first go up the bridge at speed in a car you feel pressed into the car seat and that's positive g that's g pressing you into your seat when you go over the top of the humpback bridge it's almost the, the g-force is trying to throw you out of the seat you know, sometimes you hit your head on the car roof if you do it too fast. That's negative G, and and the human body is is more able to withstand positive G than negative G. Uh, and these these open uh, class aerobatic pilots can pull plus or minus twelve G. Which the most G I've ever pulled in an aeroplane was in a Hawk. And there's a difference between instantaneous G where it comes on and goes off very quickly and sustained G where you're pulling it for, for a noticeable period of time and sustained G is much more arduous than just a quick blip of G. I, the, the most arduous I've ever had, if we were in a Hawk and we pulled 7.5 G for about 30 or 40 seconds um, and it was to test um, a new helmet device. Um, and it, it's worth explaining, I guess. The, uh, at that time, night vision goggles were just coming in for pilots. And these enable you to see uh, green in, in it, through green displays um, uh, things at night. And they started using these for fast jet pilots so that when they f- were flying low... At night, in where the terrain is not lit, you could get see something, you know, the ridge of hills or whatever. The trouble with these things is that they weighed about two and a half kilograms, and they were on the front of your helmet. So there was two concerns. One is um, neck strain when you're pulling G, because the, if you're pulling positive G, 
that lump of, of instrument is forward of the neck. Right. So it's going to be pulling your head down. The other one was when you eject, um, and there were worries about it you know, could damage your neck when you ejected. We were asked by the RAF to clear the use of these on the Hawk, so uh, the test pilots were doing their flying, and I wanted to go up and see what problems there were. So we were, we were in this manoeuvre in this Hawk where I've got a helmet on with one of these night vision goggles on it. Um, and he started pulling up to 7.5G and I'm struggling to keep my chin off my chest because wow. he's just pulling my head down. And then the pilot that was flying the aeroplane said, now try and look over your left shoulder. And it's impossible. It's just impossible when you're pulling that level of G. So that was, you know, running a, an aircraft design team, it, the designer needs to appreciate these sorts of things. Um, so... These guys are like superhuman, surely. I mean, to be able to fly planes in a combat sense, especially modern weaponry that we now have, I mean, the, the, you know, surely the physical demands and the strain on the body on planes that are you know, capable of all these sorts of incredible manoeuvres must mean that pilots have to be probably these days even better trained than before. They, they need well the aircraft get ever more capable, which means ever more complex and the, the problem these days is that you can do almost anything with with modern integrated avionics and computing, and you can put almost any display up showing anything to a pilot so increasingly you 've got to actually work through what does a pilot need to know at any given moment, and how do you present that so he can he can instantly understand it. Um, and how do you actually mould all of this Im incredible complexity on the aircraft into a series of buttons and touch screens and so on that he can do when he's in, is, when he's in combat and scared out of his life and trying to put you know pulling G and so on. There's another story about the Hawk. The um, um, the Hawk's it's a jet trainer, so it's not the biggest of jets. And it was quite quite compact in the cockpit in the front front seat, and we were putting all new uh, colour displays in uh, for these new Hawk versions. And the pilot, uh, the test pilot, that was responsible for um, helping us design it properly, just kept insisting that there had to be a space beside the display that you, he could rest his hand in to get to all of these buttons. And, and it was so constrained for space, we kept saying, you don't need that. You know, it's going to be a real problem to actually give you that space and so on. So he said, right, come with me. And uh, we had a flight when it was very bumpy and turbulent. And we went all the way around the Lake District. And he said, right, now touch button X. Now try and get it again and so on. And as, you, as you're battling along at lower level through all this turbulence and so on, if your arm is, if you can't pin your hand on some structure and just use your thumb, your hand's all over the place because wow. you're bouncing everywhere and you can't hit that. the buttons. So there's, there's practical things like that as well. Um, so, um, so then I went after British Aerospace, I did 25 years with them. I went then to a company called GKN, which at the time predominantly did automotive stuff but it also owned Westland helicopters um, 
and it wanted to build up an aerospace business. So me and some other senior ex executives uh, set about building up uh, a big uh, profitable aerospace business, which uh, has subsequently been absorbed into a company called Melrose uh, and is, is a very, very successful aerospace business, turning over about four billion pounds, making great profits, and it predominantly works, not exclusively, but predominantly works in civil aerospace. So it does very big structures for Airbus, for Boeing, and for the engine companies. Wow. And now we're sitting opposite Ariadne here. <laughs> Which is the opposite of all of that. Yeah. We were also mentioning that the, um, you know, the, the, if you look at the 1910, was it 1910, Wright Brothers? Wright Brothers was 1903. 1903. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think you, I, I, you're going to remind me, I mentioned that Concorde f flew first only about 50 years after then. It's it, it was unbelievable, it, isn't it? it was the, actually, the, the st statistic works best. It was 50 years after the end of the First World War. So the, the, the first flight to supersonic, um, you know, uh, was it supersonic? Uh, it, was, it, was, it could do twice the speed of sound, Concorde. Wow. Yes. And it carried 100 passengers in shirt sleeve comfort, eating you know a nice meal and sipping champagne. We've gone from one extreme to the other, and I yeah, what really amazed me was when we were thinking this is 1930. So this plane is 1930, and you've got that's just 30 years after you know we even realised we could fly. Yeah. And it's it's phenomenal to think that even then, I mean, they would have never have dreamed that anything like this could have even happened, would nope. they? No. Nope. From that first flight. The, fir the first powered flight in the UK was 1908. Wow. At Farnborough, by an American, naturalised English-American called Cody. Um, and everything's come from that. But the Wright brothers were well ahead of the game. Um, the French beat the Brits to the first flight in Europe, powered flight in Europe, but even they were well behind the Wright brothers. So what, what the Wright brothers did was just remarkable. And where do you think this is going to go? Do you think we're reaching the limits of physics? Um, climate change is going to affect everything. Um, I chair a trade association called FAC, which represents companies in the southeast of England that, that are in aerospace and defence. And there's a whole mass of re research being done by universities and companies and so on now about uh, how do we make aircraft greener and uh, there's a lot of work going into what's called sustainable aviation fuel which is fuel that's not made from oil it's made from waste products or whatever else um, or plant matter um, which is a partial solution in my view but not the full solution so at the Airbuses of the world, the Boeings of the world, are uh, spending a fortune now looking at hydrogen-powered aircraft. So that's going to radically change everything. And one of the, the concerns in, say, the vintage aircraft movement is these old engines, although they, in terms of the pollution they cause, it's, it's in, immeasurably small because there are so few of them mm. and they don't produce that much anyway... Uh, but if, there, we, if we get to a point where all internal combustion engines are banned, what happens to vintage aircraft then uh, is, a, is a concern. Hopefully n not for a very long time because 
um, to ban these beautiful aircraft going up, flying around would be a, a tragedy, and it wouldn't it wouldn't make diddly squat difference to um, to climate change. But the broader aspect of airliners, long haul flight, you name it, is going to have to radically change over the next twenty five years more than the, it's done since the Second World War. I always imagine that if you think about the you know the, the planes and then you look at the the boats the large tankers all circling the planet when you get your hands on flight radar 24 and when you look at the uh, marine traffic the yeah. boat equivalent and you just suddenly get a snapshot of how much fuel is being used at any given point yeah. and that's not even considering all the cars in the world or the you know all the commercial uses for fuel and then also the motorbikes and everything else and you take you know I mean I visited Vietnam not too long ago and you, th- you see all the little mopeds there. And it, it completely, it's, it's absolutely un- unimaginable like how much fuel is being used every second yeah. like glo- in a global sense. Yeah. So, yeah, where we go from there, it's a the, it's the, the a biggest question. The biggest polluter of all in terms of CO2 is the built environment. It's, it's houses, factories, uh, you name it. Um, the second one is... Um, Cargo ships, 98% of the world's cargo goes by ship. Most of those ships use high sulfur oils because they're cheaper. Um, Then it's aerospace. Um, Automotive is obviously a massive contributor. Um, So, and it has to be tackled. Without question, climate change is real. And it's, if anything, it's speeding up. And it has to be gripped. Um, Whether big commercial air, air aircraft can actually evolve quickly enough I think is quite an interesting question or are they just going to keep putting the prices up and price out a lot of people that can now afford to travel I have to say it's a very long way away from us in our tweed outfits (laughs) (laughs) after our grouse shoot (laughs) day tourists uh, off to our lovely uh, restaurant in the Lake District Absolutely. It's a superb, superb thing. And um, thank you very much for the opportunity to get almost sick riding around <laughs> in the plane with you. But you didn't get sick. <laughs> you, you went very pasty. But you managed to uh, get back um, intact. But um, no, it was, not, it was a pleasure. It, it was, was a, a, pleasure. a truly memorable experience. So thank, thank you, you very much.